On occasion, I'll take my mountain bike out to George With and I'll ride the single track trails through George With Park. And one of the things that I love about doing that is you really feel like you're not in uh, in any sort of city, any sort of town. You're kind of like out in the middle of nowhere, weaving through the forest and there's no one around. And the only noises that you can hear are the tires crunching and the, the leaves underneath them and the trees creaking as they sway in the wind and occasionally you'll come across a deer or some turkeys or whatever and if you've ever ridden those trails you'll find that as you're winding through the woods that it's still best to follow the well-worn trail that's been etched into the earth by those bikers who have gone before you and not only does this keep you from getting totally lost uh, but it also keeps you from getting hurt it keeps you from going a direction going off and getting lost and getting you know running into something or getting stuck uh, in the woods and and it helps you know how to navigate also the unexpected dips and turns that perhaps you wouldn't have been able to see if if there was no path before you and our goal for heroes of our faith is somewhat similar because our goal for this class is actually not ultimately to teach you about church history, though we're gonna do that. It's not ultimately though to learn about church history and it isn't even mainly to teach you about people who came before us in history. That's not even the main point as well, though we're gonna learn about church history, we're gonna learn about some people who have gone before us, but instead our goal is very similar to the goal of the writer of Hebrews, who after walking through a list of people who, imperf who were imperfectly faithful, to a perfectly faithful God, that the writer of Hebrews, as he walks through in chapter 11, people like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Enoch and Abel and Moses, after walking through this entire list of this kind of uh, hall of fame of faith, the writer sums it all up in chapter 12, and he says this. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, therefore, so he's walked through this list of people, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And so the question as we start Heroes of Our Faith is, is really kind of like, why learn church history at all? Why, why learn history and why learn about these people who have gone before us? It's ultimately so that their faith, and even more, God's faithfulness to them, it's so that their faith and God's faithfulness to them then would strengthen our faith and our faithfulness to God now. And so the ultimate goal, the end goal of church history is not ultimately education, but endurance. The end goal of this class isn't to fill our minds, but is to strengthen our faith. And so the way that this class is gonna work is that you're going to have some reading that you'll do uh, before each class session. And then when you come to class, we're gonna introduce you to a person who lived around the period of time that you read about the week before. And so for this video right now, you should have read the introduction and the, the first, uh, the first, I forget what it's called, the first lesson. Uh, I think that's what it's called in the book. So introduction, first lesson, and now we're gonna look at a person in history from uh, the first century or second century, I suppose. And so when you come to the in-person class, uh, the class session one, you're gonna want to read lesson two before you come to that class. And so for this introductory section, you uh, read lesson one and what you read about was what was going on in the second century. Now it can be really easy for us to want to skip straight from the early church in the first century and maybe for some of you, it's really easy for you to want to skip from the early church 
and jump all the way to the 18th century. We're going to get there, but the 18th century with the Reformation. Or perhaps for you, it's not even skipping from the first century to the 18th century. Maybe for you, it's skipping from, it's reading the New Testament, reading about the early church in the first century, and then jumping all the way to the 21st century, where we live right now. But what we need to see is that in between the first century and the 21st century stands 2,000 years of people whose faith and whose faithfulness are still relevant for us today. And one example of this life of faith and faithfulness is a man known as Polycarp of Smyrna. Now, the reason that he's referred to as Polycarp of Smyrna is because he was a pastor of a church of Smyrna, which is actually one of the churches that the Apostle John writes to in Revelation chapter 2. And the church in Smyrna is actually one of two churches that Jesus that Jesus speaks to in Revelation 2. It's one of two churches that Jesus actually has no corrective words for. You have the church of Smyrna and you have the church of Philadelphia. They were two of the seven churches mentioned that Jesus didn't have something to correct. But long before Polycarp was a pastor in the church of Smyrna, Polycarp was a boy who grew up in a home where his parents were some of the first disciples of the early church. In fact, it was the apostle John himself who led Polycarp and his parents to faith in Jesus Christ. One of the pastors at Cottage Grove, uh, his name is Icky. He's a great guy and I got to meet him recently. And as we were talking, I learned that uh, one of his main mentors in, in his faith and his life as a pastor was Tony Evans. Now, if you don't know Tony Evans, Tony Evans is a pastor in Dallas who is super well known in certain circles. He was actually, I believe he was one of the, one of, if not the first African-American uh, pastor to be put on the radio. And so, uh, but if you go look up Tony Evans, you'll find a ton of sermons. I've been personally influenced by his ministry a lot. But when I heard that Icky down at Cottage Grove had been, had been like personally discipled by Tony Evans, I had to really kind of play it cool because here's this guy larger, you know, Tony Evans, larger than life is, has not like my, my degrees of separation, the degrees of separation between me and Tony Evans shrunk significantly as I got to know Icky. And so I'm kind of trying to not fanboy here as I learned that Icky has been personally influenced by Tony Evans. Well, imagine that not only, imagine not having Tony Evans as, as the person that discipled you, but the apostle John himself, right? Well, that was Polycarp and his parents. And so as a young boy, Polycarp grew up in a Christian home he was discipled primarily by his parents, but also by the Apostle John, and along with his friend Ignatius, so Polycarp had a friend whose name is Ignatius, they would both sit under John's teaching about who Jesus Christ was, that this God-man came in the flesh, came to earth, who died, rose again, so that Polycarp and Ignatius and all who believe would have eternal life. And so Polycarp lived in Smyrna, which at the time was one of the larger Roman provinces in Asia, and by that point, it was very, very clear that the Romans did not like Christians at all. You see, you have to remember that one year after Polycarp was born, the Romans seized Jerusalem and totally destroyed the city and destroyed the, temp the temple because they saw Christians as being disloyal to the Roman Empire. And so they not only, and they not only saw Christians as being disloyal, but they also saw Christians as being 
dangerous. And so you can imagine as a young boy, Polycarp is walking down the streets of Smyrna with his parents on the way to the market. And as they're walking down, the people around them know that this family are Christians. And so they're dangerous and they're disloyal. And so you can imagine the types of conversations that Polycarp, just as a little kid, is going to hear as he's walking by people who are very hostile to him and to his family. And you can imagine that as a young boy, as he's hearing these things, Fear fills him, and he, and he grabs onto his father's hand even tighter as they walk to the market because he knew that Rome didn't like Christians at all. And so as Polycarp continued, as Polycarp grew up and continued to follow Christ, he would eventually become one of the leaders in the church in Smyrna, which is what John writes to in Revelation chapter 2. Now remember, remember a couple things here. John discipled Polycarp and his family. And then later on, John was exiled to the island of Patmos toward the end of his life. And it was in his exile on the island of Patmos that, that he wrote the book of Revelation based on the revelation he had received from the Lord. And so the apostle John and Polycarp are living at the same time. But now this guy who has discipled Polycarp is exiled off on an island. And, and about, when, about when Polycarp is about 30 years old, imagine he receives this writing from John, the book of Revelation, where in chapter two, verse 10, John records Jesus saying this to the church that Polycarp is a leader in. And he says this, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you'll experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Can you imagine Polycarp as the leader of that church receiving that writing and hearing from the Lord himself through John's writing the encouragement to you to be faithful to the point of death because he will give you the crown of life. And little did Polycarp know how much he was actually going to need that encouragement in the coming days. Because as persecution continued to rise in Smyrna, as it reached its height, Polycarp desired to stay in the city. He didn't want to leave. He didn't want to just you know, abandon his church in this city where, where persecution was, uh, was growing. But many of the people around him, uh, out of a desire to keep him safe, because that's, that's how persecution would often start, it uh, often still does, is that they get, you go after the church leaders first in hopes that you'll disperse the followers. And so uh, the people around him encouraged him to leave the city so that he wouldn't be put to death. And so he moved out of the city and stayed with some friends in the countryside. And it was there in those houses that he would devote himself to praying night and day for all the people and for all the churches throughout the world. And so meanwhile, while Polycarp is staying in these houses, the Roman officials are searching for Polycarp, but he's able to stay kind of one step ahead of him, right? It's this kind of like cat and mouse game. And so by the time they would get to a house, he would have already left. Now, this game of cat and mouse finally came to an end when the Roman officials seized two young boys who knew where Polycarp was. And after torturing them for a while, one of those boys finally revealed the house that Polycarp was staying at. So when his pursuers showed up to the house where he was where he was staying, he, Polycarp actually met them at the door and offered them something to eat and drink. And the reason why he did that, uh, one, I'm sure, was because he's a super godly guy and wanted to be hospitable, but two, because he was actually wanting to buy some time that before they took him away, that he could spend some time 
in prayer. And so he made them a meal, he got them some drinks, and for two hours they ate and drank downstairs while he went upstairs and prayed before being taken away. And once he finished praying, the men took him away. And at this point, I'd just like to read for you the account of his final moments that were actually recorded by fellow believers who were there at the, at the end of Polycarp's life. And this is from a little book. It's kind of more of a pamphlet. It's called Polycarp's Letter to the Philippians and his martyrdom. And, and, and here's what the believers who saw this happen had to say. But without being disturbed, and as if suffering nothing, he went eagerly forward with all haste and was conducted to the stadium, where the tumult was so great that there was no possibility of being heard. Now, as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show yourself a man, O Polycarp. No one saw who it was that spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. And on confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, have respect to your old age and other similar things, according to their custom, such as swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say away with the atheist. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium and waving his hand toward them, while, the groan, while with groans he looked up to heaven, said away with the atheist. Then the proconsul urging him and saying, swear and I will set you at liberty, reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, 80 and six years have I served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, since you are vainly urgent that as you say, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am, Hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and you shall hear them. The proconsul replied, persuade the people. But Polycarp said, to you I have thought it right to offer an account of my faith. For we are taught to give all due honor, which entails no injury upon ourselves to the powers and authorities which are ordained of God. But as for these, I do not deem them worthy of receiving any account from me. The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast you unless you repent. But he answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. But again the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beast if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little while is, is extinguished but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. This then was carried into effect with greater speed than it was spoken. And as they prepared the fire around him, he lifted up his voice in prayer, giving thanks to the Father that he would be counted worthy of drinking the martyr's cup for the sake of the glory of Christ. When he had pronounced this amen and so finished his prayer, those who were appointed for the purpose kindled the fire and as the flame blazed forth in great fury, we to whom it was given to witness it beheld a great miracle and had been preserved so that we might report to others what then took place. For the fire, shaping itself into the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind, encompassed as by a circle the body of the martyr. And he appeared within, not like flesh which is burnt, 
but as bread that is baked, or as gold and silver growing in a furnace. Moreover, we perceive such a sweet odor coming from the pile as a frankincense or some such precious spices had been smoking here. At length, when those wicked men perceived that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to go near and pierce him through with a dagger. And on doing this, there came forth such a great quantity of blood, so that the fire was extinguished. And all the people wondered that there should be such a difference between the unbelievers and the elect. So, what can we learn from the life and from the death of our brother Polycarp? How might we stand on his shoulders and follow in his footsteps? Two quick things. First, is that the gospel goes across the world by going across the street. The gospel goes across the world by going across the street. Even in the little bit of what we know of Polycarp's life, we can see the ripple effects, the exponential effects of discipleship by Christians who take discipleship seriously. Polycarp and his parents were won to Christ because of the Apostle John's faithful witness and John's discipleship of his family. But one interesting thing is that Polycarp then, along with his friend Ignatius, then turned around and discipled a guy by the name of Irenaeus. And Irenaeus was actually one of the first disciples, and he became a bishop in the church, and he wrote this small book that's entitled On the Apostolic Preaching. You can still buy it on Amazon today, which is essentially the, the very first recorded systematic theology that we have in existence was written by Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. And so, and then for centuries after that, on the apostolic preaching written by Irenaeus was actually used in, in, the, in the new believer classes as people who wanted to be baptized would be discipled on the faith into which they wanted to be baptized so that they would actually understand the essence of the gospel and understand the doctrine of scripture. Do you see the exponential effects of discipleship? Have you ever heard the name Edward Kimball? Probably not. My guess is you don't know that name. My guess is you don't know anyone even close to that name. And the reason you don't know his name is because Edward Kimball was a humble, no name, unassuming, unimpressive Sunday school teacher in the 1800s. But it was Edward Kimball's Sunday school class that, that taught Dwight Moody. And Dwight Moody received Christ. And then it was through Moody's ministry that J. Wilbur Chapman came to Christ. And it was through J. Wilbur Chapman's ministry that Billy, that Billy Sunday came to Christ. And it was through Billy Sunday's ministry that Mordecai Ham came to Christ. And it was through Mordecai Ham's ministry that Billy Graham came to Christ. You see, you, you never know how your discipleship of others is going to ripple across generations. It's highly unlikely. It's highly unlikely that any of our names will show up in a Heroes of Our Faith class at any church 100 years from now. Highly unlikely. Impossible. Don't even expect it. It's not going to happen. But it's quite possible that the disciple of the disciple of the disciple of someone you invest in today, perhaps their name 
would show up in a class just like this. So don't underestimate the effects. Don't underestimate the impact of faithful and consistent discipleship of other people. So the gospel goes across the street, it goes across the world by going across the street. And then what can we learn from Polycarp number two? Public witness is fueled by private worship. Public witness is fueled by private worship. How in the world could Polycarp stand so boldly in the face of persecution, even to the point of death? It was because for decades, for decades, Polycarp had beheld a greater treasure of greater beauty than anything this world could offer for decades. It wasn't when he fled the city that Polycarp finally cultivated a life of prayer. It wasn't in the face of opposition and persecution that Polycarp cultivated the relationship that would be necessary, the depth of relationship with Christ upon which he would stand in the face of opposition. No, it was by communing with the Lord in private prayer that gave him the strength and the courage to identify with Christ in the public square. It was by communing with the Lord in private that he could stand for Christ in public. There he was, an 86-year-old man, standing among the wood and the fuel, waiting to be burned, embracing his fate with joy, because for decade after decade after decade, he had worshiped a savior who, as the writer of Hebrews would say, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God.